Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. The FT. Hello and welcome back to FT Science. This week, we look at the tobacco industry and ask whether companies that make billions of pounds selling cigarettes can be trusted to develop safer alternatives to smoking. We are interested in seeing these products developed, but I think we would rather, if a big industry has to be involved, it be the pharmaceutical industry, which has a track record in nicotine replacement therapy, rather than the tobacco industry. And we discuss whether screening for prostate cancer does more harm than good. In this screening group that included 1,400 men, we found 85 cases of prostate cancer, but despite the radical treatment, we did not find an improvement in the prostate cancer survival. I'm Clive Cookson, and you're listening to FT Science. Our regular guest, Diana Garnham, Chief Executive of Britain's Science Council, is with me. And we're joined by Deborah Arnott, Chief Executive of the campaigning group Action on Smoking and Health. Today, British American Tobacco announces the creation of a subsidiary called Nico Ventures, which aims to develop and commercialise a new generation of non-tobacco nicotine products. BAT says these will be quite different from the range of cigarette substitutes available today such as e-cigarettes and nicotine patches and gums, though the company is being coy about quite what type of product it has in mind. But it's clear that BAT sees Nico Ventures developing into a substantial consumer business. Deborah, as an anti-smoking campaigner, can you see any benefits in having a tobacco company developing new products that could help to wean smokers off its own cigarettes? I think it's difficult to see benefits of the tobacco industry getting involved in this. Ash has been supportive of the idea of alternative, safer nicotine products as an alternative to cigarettes. But we are very nervous, and I think the public health community as a whole is very nervous about the tobacco industry getting involved. And the reason for that is that we see it as an alternative for pre-existing smokers. And we think that the tobacco industry is likely to see this as a way of expanding its market, of getting new people in, and maybe even getting them to move into safer products and move up to smoke products. And I think we're also very nervous because the industry has such a history of misleading the public, regulators, politicians, everyone really, Um, that it's very hard to believe that this time round they're doing it for public benefit. So who do you think should be developing these safer alternatives to smoking? The BAT argument against what you say is that they have the consumer marketing power. They understand smokers and they will be able to sell suitable products better than anyone else, better than the pharma companies, for example. 
Well, Ash and the Royal College of Physicians have worked quite a lot on this and came out with a report just a few years ago in 2007-8. And we are interested in seeing these products developed, but I think we would rather, if a big industry has to be involved, it be the pharmaceutical industry, which has a track record in nicotine replacement therapy, rather than the tobacco industry. But would smokers actually want to buy products developed by the pharmaceutical industry? Again, the BAT argument is that to work, these new products have to deliver psychologically and physiologically and even emotionally the same sort of kick as cigarettes. And they say that the products on the market deliver nicotine too slowly and in too low doses. That's certainly true, but I think you have to see it within a regulatory context. The MHRA, the Medicines and Healthcare Regulatory Authority, has already announced that it will be bringing in a regulatory structure for nicotine products that aren't just for smoking cessation. It's licensed harm reduction, and as a result of that, actually all nicotine-containing products potentially come within its remit. And what that means is that there will be limitations about how they can be promoted to the public. And there certainly won't be any brand sharing with tobacco products because that's prevented under the advertising rules and regulations. So it's hard to see what the USP of the tobacco industry will be in those circumstances. Diana? I find the case that BAT and similar companies have the marketing clout a bit of a red herring, actually. It seems to me that they're marketing cigarettes and tobacco products to one type of audience and marketing nicotine alternative projects is a completely different audience that will think differently and needs different marketing techniques so I'm not sure those are true and I can't envisage an almost a Chinese wall within a company board where part of the company has a health message and the other half of the company hasn't. Why do you think then that products to persuade people not to smoke or help them not to smoke have not done better anywhere in the world. They have, actually. If you look at the case of Sweden, where snus, which is smokeless tobacco, has been very successful, and there has been a significant switch between cigarettes and snus amongst men and, more recently, amongst women. Now, the difference between there and anywhere else and trying to bring in nicotine products that aren't tobacco-based and aren't smokeless tobacco is that in Sweden there was a pre-existing market and this was a product that everyone knew and understood. Looking more broadly at actions that governments and around the world can take to stop people smoking, what do you think the priorities should be? Well, if you listen to Richard Pito, who's the scientist who's done most work on this, well, since um, Richard Doll died, his view is that the best thing you can do is to get existing smokers to quit. Richard Pito is the Oxford professor, the epidemiologist. That's right, yes. And that's because actually it's very difficult. Stopping uptake is very difficult. And the, the greatest health benefit will come from getting existing smokers to quit, and certainly to quit by the time they're in their 30s. The message that smoking is very bad for you has been around since, as you say, Richard Dole first proved the case in the 1950s. Do you think the climate for getting smokers to quit is better now than it has been over the last 50, 60 years? Well, if you look at what's happened, we were one of the first countries into the epidemic, and it is an epidemic where smoking increases rapidly, first amongst men and then amongst women in most societies, and certainly that was the case in ours. And we're also one of the first countries down the other side of it. I mean, actually, we've been very successful over the last 
a decade or so. Smoking rates amongst adults have fallen by a quarter and amongst young people, 11 to 15-year-olds, by over a half over that period of time. But it's tailed off. And the problem with smoking is that with the tobacco industry as a vector, it's not like malaria. You've got the tobacco industry out there promoting it. You have to keep bringing in new measures and keep pushing back because there is a pressure upwards. And we see smoking is something that really only children and young people take up. Very few people take up smoking after they reach mid-twenties, almost no one. And the vast majority uh, take up the habit as teenagers. Thanks, Deborah. Now, let's hear from Duncan Jarvis at the British Medical Journal. Prostate cancer is one of the most common cancers amongst men. Screening is widely used in many countries, but remains controversial. Do the benefits of catching an aggressive form of the cancer in some outweigh the harms of over-treating a more benign form in others? No, concludes a study published in the BMJ this week. It's, it's of course, uh, it's a problem with screening that you have a tendency of, of detecting the more benign tumours. The more aggressively growing tumours, they may grow too rapidly to be detected through screening. We cannot confirm that definitely, but there are indications that men that are diagnosed through screening, they may be overtreated. That was Gabriel Sandblum of the Karolinska Institute in Stockholm, who carried out the study of 9,026 men, which started in 1987 and then followed them for the next 20 years. In this screening group that included 1,400 men, we found 85 cases of prostate cancer, but despite the radical treatment, we did not find an improvement in the prostate cancer survival compared to the 8,000 men that were included in the control group. The radical treatment mentioned there is prostate surgery to remove the cancer or the whole prostate. Of course, surgery as it is performed today has less side effects than it had 20 years ago. But nevertheless, all surgical procedures have some risks. As for example, you have the risk of incontinence and risk of impotence. When the study was started in 1987, manual examination was how men were screened. But as a new test was developed, they switched to that. The PSA, prostate-specific antigen test, looks in the blood for a protein produced in the prostate, raised levels of which indicate a tumour. And it is this simple blood test that is now offered routinely in many places. This isn't the first paper to highlight the risk of overdiagnosis and treatment in prostate cancer. Other studies have shown that to prevent one death, 1,410 men would need to be screened and 48 treated. The way that prostate cancer screening was performed, at least as it was performed 20 years ago, is not an effective way of reducing prostate cancer mortality. We do not have sufficient data on treatment as it is performed presently. But on the other hand, this is the first study where we have 20 years of follow-up. In order to assess the outcome of a screening program, you need to have a long follow-up because prostate cancer is a slowly progressing disease and you cannot say anything about prostate cancer mortality until you have followed the man for at least 10 or 20 years. Treatment of prostate cancer has improved radically in the 20 years since the study started, but the evidence at the moment suggests that screening may do more harm than good. Thanks, Duncan, and thanks to the BMJ.
And I must say that personally, as a middle-aged man, I am not going to have a prostate cancer screen, a PSA test. I accept what this study and others have said, that the risks of overtreatment and worry that I would get are greater than the possible benefits of earlier detection. And of course, there are similar debates about the value of other screening programs, such as breast cancer in women. Though I think the balance of the argument there is more strongly in favour of screening than it is in prostate cancer. Diana, where do you stand on the screening debate? I think you can see where people get very confused about the central message here. I mean, the debates about prostate cancer screening have been around in the community for a long time, but in the general public, they sit alongside a climate where there is a greater confidence, I think, in the concept of preventative screening. So it's a shame to confuse a public. Deborah, what do you think? I think that's absolutely right. And I think also it does vary by different sorts of cancer. For example, cervical cancer screening, you can treat very effectively if you discover it early enough. And I've got a friend who's very ill with cervical cancer at the moment because it wasn't diagnosed soon enough. So the problem is that the message about screening, as you point out, will be a general message that people take. They'll generalise from prostate cancer to all forms of cancer and other forms of, of screening too. And I think there's an interesting add-on I'd like to to give on lung cancer where treatment is very unsuccessful and we have bad five-year survival rates because we don't identify lung cancer soon enough. But if we identified lung cancer sooner, it would make the five-year survival rates look better, but the outcomes for the individuals concerned would be no different. It's just that instead of being discovered with lung cancer, you know, three or five years before they die from it, they'll be discovered five or seven years before they die from it. How do you screen for lung cancer? It's very difficult and that's the problem. You can't actually screen for it early enough that you can take action that has a significant impact. And of course there's going to be a whole new range of gene-based screens coming up soon. I mean we were talking about smoking earlier. I imagine that it won't be too long before you can offer people a screen to show how badly they're going to be harmed by smoking. Some people are harmed worse than others, aren't they? Well, it's certainly something the tobacco industry is interested in. It's an interesting point, isn't it? Because you were talking about breast cancer. Well, I had a friend who had the very aggressive... Her genetic makeup is linked to a very aggressive form of breast cancer and she's lost her aunt and her mother to it. Well, there, clearly, treatment is predicated by that. Whereas for some other people, you'd have much lower risks. And I think it's getting more complicated, not less complicated as time goes on. I think we might have to think about these things slightly differently. I mean, the good side is that the screening program is producing data, long-term data, that is helping us understand the progression of the diseases. The the other side is that it's quite obvious to me when I talk to middle-aged men that they are actually getting very good counselling after being screened positively for prostate cancer about the question of whether there should or shouldn't be any treatment. So that might be where one focuses the effort rather than a message around the screening doesn't work. That's a debate that's going to carry on, but I'm afraid that's all we have time for today. Please join us again next week. All that's left for me now is to thank my studio guests, Diana Garnham of the Science Council and Deborah Arnott of ASH. And thank you for listening. FT Science was produced by LJ Filatrani. I'm Clive Cookson. Goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts.